Hello and welcome to How Did It Get So Late, a live broadcast Tuesday nights at 9.10pm where I read you a short story. Um, I'm so happy to be back reading to you. It's been a hot minute um, and I'm looking forward to getting back into the routine of this uh, because I did really love having something, um, an excuse to read short stories and, um, you know, do something on a Tuesday night, but, um, yeah, the past two weeks I've been taking a workshop at Penland School of Crafts, um, I got a work-study scholarship, and the workshop was learning borrow ending and indigo dyeing, and, um, it was, <laughs> it was exhausting, for sure, but a lovely experience, um, and I met some really cool people that are doing cool things. Um, and who doesn't love to, you know, meet cool people that are doing cool things? Uh, I also brought back uh, some indigo paste to start my own dive at. And I'm very excited about this. Um, the process is super cool and really, you know, the... The lights of, if I wasn't an artist, I wanted to be a scientist dream of mine is back, um, because the chemistry and just, like, the oxidization, and I don't know, it's very, it's a very cool process, um, but, yeah, I, I really, truly am happy to be back, though. I missed Noodle quite a bit, um, I'm sure he'll make his presence known. <laughs> Um, but it's, it's hard not to worry about him being stressed out when he just scream meows at the walls when I'm gone. <laughs> but, um, he seems pleased that I'm back, so. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> and I'm happy, I'm really happy to be back in the city, too, because, um, Penland is, like, the Roll Mountains, which is beautiful and stunning and... We swam in a river there, but um, I've spent my whole life in rural countryside um, and was eager to get back to the city that I just moved to. So, um, yeah, uh, I've, I've just been doing podcast work and various errands since I got home a few days ago, but um, yesterday... I went, the relevancy of this, you will see, um, to the library and got myself a library card. Um, I had a fantastic walk there, it was so beautiful, and um, I, I spent a few hours looking at short storybooks, which they graciously have, like, little placards on the on the backs of them that tell the spines that tell you that they are short story books which come on that's like perfection <laughs> um yeah so i spent a few hours there looking and just as i thought that i wasn't gonna find anything um I picked up this lovely yellow hardback of short stories and opened to one 
And that story was about a girl moving from New York to a small community in Virginia. And I was like, there's no way <laughs> that I can't read this right now. So I start reading and their last name is Wilkins, which is my last name. So like, what, what, what are the odds? And um, yeah, I read about four more stories from this book um, until I landed on one that um, I, a few pages in, decided, yes, this is the one. It is not, um, unfortunately, the one about the girl who moves to Virginia, but it is quite good all the same. Um, I have, as always, um, not read the whole story. I've only read a few pages as to experience it with you. Um, so I do not know what the end holds for us, but from what I've read, it will be good. Um, so this mysterious book is called Where the Light Falls. Um, I'm always pleased when I have a physical copy of the book and I don't have to read it on my computer. Um, but, and it's, okay, so it's Where the Light Falls, and it's a collection of short stories by Nancy Hale. Um, she's like an older, uh, they're definitely older language stories, I guess. Um, different from what we typically read, I suppose. Um, besides the the one about the girl in the forest. And that one was stunning. So I expect nothing less. Um, but some background on Nancy. She was... Um, honestly, she had kind of a crazy life. Uh, she started a newspaper for her family when she was eight in Boston. I think it was called, like, something cat. <laughs> I can't quite remember, but it was cute. Um, and then she moved to New York and worked for Vogue um, in the art department. And all while she's, like, working for Vogue, she's writing her own collection of stories. And she gets published, um, her first book of short stories gets published in 1935, and she was age 27. Then she moves to Charlottesville, Virginia, hence why uh, a lot of her stories take place in Virginia, so, and, and New York, so fitting, I suppose. Um, but the lovely mountain town of Charlottesville, Virginia, um, she wrote, I think, I think it was like a hundred short stories or a hundred of them were published and she was largely writing about um like almost character studies on women so I'm not saying that she's a lesbian but um I mean she did have three husbands as well and it seemed like love them very deeply but what I'm about to read seems just, you know, a tad suspicious on her end. But that's kind of why I I got excited about reading this and then I realized um you'll you'll see what I'm talking about when I start, but um yeah, as a very rough estimate, tonight's is gonna be a bit longer since I have to um make up for <laughs> the 
two weeks that I was gone. Um, so it'll probably run about an hour, maybe a bit more. I guess it depends on how, uh, how quickly I read this. Um, yeah. Okay, so, and I apologize. I can't remember if I've already apologized for this, but I apologize for any interruptions of Noodle. And, um, I'm, I am sitting in maybe the most creaky chair um but here we are so without further ado this is rich people by nancy hale after the shock of seeing that face in san francisco it is no wonder my recurrent dreamlike memory of Clam Harbor and the days when I was growing up there enveloped me once more as I lay last night in my narrow bed, awakened by the ghastly laughter of coyotes out in the Arizona desert. But this time, it seemed to come out differently. I lay there, worrying about the ailing children in my charge, and gradually, instead of them, I seemed to see the old dock of silvery splintered boards supported at the corners by the weathered posts called dolphins. Remnants of last night's fog drift across the dock and gauzy streamers. It is the middle of the morning and everyone has gone sailing except me. But I am nineteen and would rather be caught dead than out in a boat with those great hardy brutes in their blue jeans laughing at their wholesome jokes. I am sitting on the edge of the dock with my feet hanging over the edge, and beside me sits the idol of my life, dressed in a dark red French jersey and tweed shirt, with a string of Chanel pearls around her neck. Miss Bogdan! She is gazing out to where vignettes of brilliantly blue ocean are framed in the garlands of the mist, and telling me about Paris, St. Moritz, and Bryony. Suddenly, as always in this remembered half-dream, she remarks, The way to be happy is to be always in love, don't you think? I nod and swallow hard, thrilled. Miss Bogdan lights another of her Balkan somberies and turns towards me, her face with its delightful nose and dark red lips bordered by exquisitely arranged gray hair. Don't you? she repeats. She seems actually to want to know what I think. Don't you think it is? I mean, just dark red lips, exquisitely arranged gray hair. This woman is in love. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, I could never before last night reply, either in real life or in memory. What could such as I tell Miss Bogdan about anything? Miss Bogdan, on the other hand, had everything to tell me. I was, at that peri period, desperately in love myself, and while the condition was making me anything but happy, this present seemed, for me, perpetually on the point of breaking forth into a radiant heaven, complete with violet angel wings and harps that played that certain feeling. I had fallen in love with a Harvard boy from New York. See, this is where I started to become disappointed. <laughs> um, but, you know, you can't win them all, I guess. 
Um, I had fallen in love with a Harvard boy from New York, whose family owned a house in London and a chateau in Newport, who had presented me with a bottle of Guerlain's Leur Bleu. Glamour was what I needed to cope with my situation. Glamour was what Miss Bogdan was compact of. She was exactly what I wanted, what I needed to be, down to her long, dark red fingertips. Sitting within her aura, I thought how wonderful it would seem to be my old Windsor soulmate, Carolina Bogdan, and have such a stepmother, someone who could with easy grace lead the way along the paths of the great world and into the courts of sophistication. My own family seemed to me unsophisticated to the point of imbecility. A person who never visited Boston in the old days cannot imagine the degree to which simplicity could be cultivated in families like ours. And the sightseer from South Bend who did, perhaps, stare studiously up at our house on the water side of Beacon Street could never have realized that its two bathrooms contained zinc-lined tubs about 50 years old in which all of us Elliots took cold baths before breakfast straight through the winter, that even the grown-ups made their breakfasts of whole oranges, whole wheat porridge, and whole milk, that decisions about the day's subsequent menus were based entirely upon nutritive, not gustatory values, that such entertainments as we might attend, symphony and Shakespeare, were selected upon a comparable basis, that for school we girls were dressed invariably like our mother in serviceable scotch tweeds, worn over long woolen drawers, to which we gave a twist before pulling up our cotton stockings and lacing our brown boots. A fair isle sweater might constitute the sole lavish note in our daytime wardrobes. For Foster's dancing classes at the Somerset, we wore, with inevitability, pink taffeta, with a tinsel rose at the hip and low-heeled silver slippers. Inevitably. I mean, what more do you, do you wear to Foster's dancing classes? All this high thinking and plain living carried with it a faint but definitive religious tinge. To Bostonians like us, living in the way that people from New York did, worldly people, rich people, was wrong, with a capital W. Not that my family was churchy. They were fully liberated Arlington Street Church Unitarians, which meant that they subscribed handsomely and went seldom. But as good Unitarians, they believed they best served their faith when they were following their private spiritual convictions. For my mother, those involved mountain climbing. Almost from her infancy, she had hauled my older, si older sister Betsy and me up the slopes of assorted white and green mountains. Generally, she left us far behind, climbing steadily with her measured but energetic step. Many is the time I have come, panting and puffing upon my mother after she had long seated on some summit and was gazing off at the magnificence of its surroundings with an austere and serene expression, which, years later, in the catalogue of a museum, I recognized as akin to that of a sculptured Buddha, an enlightened one. When she became aware of my arrival, mother would turn her faint smile upon me, 
calm, detached, compassionate. Sit down, Lucy, she would say, and try to practice realizing that ourselves and the rest of the universe are of one substance. I would sit down, but I was never able to get interested in the topic she recommended. My thoughts, as I moved into my teens, ran to formless yearnings for clothes, to fantasies about what the world beyond Boston was like, and to boys. I was well aware that my mother's reflections were worthier ones than mine. I was even dimly aware that what animated her was something very remarkable, was, in fact, pure love. My mother's feelings about all of nature was strongly mystical. At our cottage at Clam Harbor, where she spent the, we spent the greater part of every summer, Mother taught us to swim and dive by principles a woman from another city might have reserved for dealing with her love life. I can see Mother now, long, spared limbs clad in a gray bathing suit, standing beside the diving board on the raft, moored off the beach. She had put on a gray rubber bathing cap, and between it and her long, erect, sunburned neck, some loops of sandy hair emerged. Give yourself to the water, she cries as we hesitate before the plunge. When she herself comes to dive, her narrow face, freckled and innocent of makeup, wears an expression of bliss in the instant before she dedicates herself to the sea. To mother, there was something wrong about being separated from the outdoors any more than was necessary. At Clam Harbor, we spent out on one long sleeping porch, all four of us in beds that had tarps for the nights when September equinoctial storms drove pelting rain across them. Our three meals were served on a screen porch that possessed an elevated view over Clam Harbor to Clam Point and beyond it of the Atlantic. Our Irish maids down from Boston for the summer viewed this latter custom with a sour eye. It was, of course, nothing to them that our food was cold by the time it reached us, but they did not care for waiting on table mornings when a freshly westerly breeze had sprung up or evenings when the fog insinuated clammy streamers between the meshes of the screen. Sometimes they asserted their point of view by appearing in some old raveled sweater worn over black uniform and white Hamburg-edged apron. My mother would raise sandy eyebrows. Pretty, she would say in her ringing voice. Surely you aren't cold this splendid day. No, mum, the maid would always mumble. Our maids might quit, but they never talked back, for my mother cared about her aura, unmistakably to everybody, of being in the right. Britty or Nora or Teresa would appear in another minute or two bearing muffins and sand sweater, but sometimes I would hear her when she thought herself alone washing dishes after the meal at the copper-lined sink out in the bare-matched board pantry. Ah, she would be muttering exasperation and sheer Irishness. Ah. My mother was in the right, almost always. She made a study of it, 
To her, it would have been foolish and unintelligent not to. She had trained herself to consider the various aspects of her life in order to determine what in them represented the true, the good, and the beautiful, and then to choose that and follow it up with assiduity. It seemed clear to her that there was always a better and a worser side to things, a higher and a lower. To choose the best of everything was only what one owed to oneself, one's family, and one's God. Outdoors was more beautiful than indoors. Nature was vaster than man. Love was superior to more transitory emotions. Thrift was wiser than waste. Life was short, and there was little enough time for good music and great books without wasting any of it on the trivial or the frivolous. You know, I'm all for trivial or frivolous, but I am firm in my assumption that life is too short to rewatch things because there are too many things, too many, too many things to watch and read. And, uh, yeah, though I have become less strict about this recently, so I'm really eating my words here, but, um... (laughs) There's too many things, and life is too short to uh, just, uh, you know, it's too much, too much content. <laughs> I remember my sister, Betsy, aged about 12, making one of our rare stands against the claims of the superior. But I don't like Brahms, she is insisting. Her face is red, her hands are behind her back, pressed for support against the walnut door of the library in the Beacon Street house. I can't help it if I don't like him, can I? My mother, who sits on the Chippendale sofa, which had come down in her own family, closes the book she is holding over her thumb and replies without heat. You can help giving way to nonsense, she says. You know Bram's music is great. You can at least try to feel what you ought to. Oh, Jesus. My mother was able to admit when she had been wrong, and by making a fresh assessment and a fresh judgment, arrive once more at a position of rectitude. Coming out was not a success for you, she said in early June of the summer of which I write, looking down at me from her unusual height, with the reasonable gaze that had become to me particularly particularly exasperating. If only mother could be unreasonable once in a while. You would better have begun Radcliffe at once. After all, I I misgaged the matter. A pity. Now, for Betsy, coming out seemed to be almost too much of a good thing. I muttered something. No more than any maid could I have talked back to my mother. But what a coming out mine was. I suppose mother would never have countenance a convention so foreign to fresh air and early bedtimes at all, had it not been for some concept of her own about a time of innocent gaiety, meeting jolly boys, a little girlish merriment before settling down to the realities of womanhood. Her own debut, forty years before, seems to have been along such lines. She and my father met first at a dinner at the Crown and Shields house on Marble Street. Later, they became engaged at the country club in Brookline 
on the basis of a shared interest in butterflies, sailing, and climbing mountains. That's pretty cute. That's a pretty cute uh, set of shared interests. Butterflies, sailing, and climbing mountains. I visualized them on that momentous occasion, sitting out on the glassed-in porch at the country club so long ago. Their two serious faces, which by the time I knew them had grown to look curiously alike, turned enthusiastically to one another. What my mother's dress that night was like, I don't know. But in her wedding photograph, she wears a trailing white gown trimmed with lace with a boned collar that comes all the way up her long neck to her earlobes. By the time Betsy and I came out, however, enthusiasm and shared interests were simply not enough for a girl to get by with at a dance. Betsy, who came out the year before I did, broke out of the confining circle to our, of our bringing ups by becoming wild, one of the wild girls. I doubt whether m what mother ever knew how wild. I'm not even sure myself. I know that she danced cheek to cheek and went out to parked cars during dances to neck. Oh my gosh. I shared the secret that I was routine for her to spend the night with some old school friend so that she could evade the home ordinance about not coming home alone with a boy after a dance. At the period of which I speak, Betsy's solution was a fairly typical one with Boston girls, for whom the boiling point of high-mindedness had been reached. In any coming out year, there was always at least one girl who was suspected of having gone the limit. Health was the word we used to sum up the whole, the whole unbearable rep rep repression against which such as Betsy rebelled. I can see her now, one night early in her coming out year. She had come into my room, where I was doing my next day's homework for Windsor, dressed in a pale blue chiffon dress, with silver beading at the hip to match her slippers. I said something about her looking nice. In this? she asked, her voice cracked with fury. I hate it! Look at this healthy neckline, for Pete's sake. Look at these horrible health shoes. It's all so SS and G. This was the term for sweet, sweet, simple, and girlish in our day. Look at my hair, she continued. Hers was the same fine, straight, sandy hair as mother's, done up in cross bands in the back. Suddenly, Betsy started snatching out the pins that held it. She seized my deck scissors, desk scissors and began to slash. Betsy, I cried, aghast. I don't care, she said, hacking away. Now she'll have to let me get it shingled. I will not have a crown of glory. All that was very well for Betsy. Whether because of the necking parties or not, she turned out a great success at dances and had dozens of invitations to Harvard football and ice hockey games. But nobody ever tried to neck me. The memory of my coming out party still brings cold sweat to my brow in the night. It was described in the invitations as a small dance. 
and small it certainly was. There were two other dances the same night, and not enough stags turned up at the Women's Republican Club where mine was held. Oof, that's rough, girl. The decorations were russet chrysanthemums, the season being October, and the orchestra Ted Groves, not Burt Lowe's or Billy Laws's, because father saw no point in putting money into things that did not matter. It would never have occurred to me to argue about it. His attitude toward expense was as much a part of father as walking every day, rain or shine, across the public gardens and the common to his office on Milk Street, or his espousal of woman's rights, or his attitude towards Shakespeare. I can see father as he used to stand before the fire in the library. He lifts his sandy eyebrows and remarks, my father always told me, my boy, never let anyone persuade you otherwise than that a scholar and a gentleman, Bacon in short, could have written the plays. Father coughs and the Adam's apple and his long, loose-skinned throat jerks. She glances towards mother, he glances towards mother, for support of what he has said. She usually did agree. She agreed about Ted Grove's orchestra when Father remarked that it seemed to him to play very jolly music. To its jolly music, I, the debutante, danced round and round with a, with a succession of dutiful partners. I was dressed in white tulle, of course, with healthy neckline and low-heeled white and silver brocade slippers. That South Bend sightseer might next day have been impressed by the far greater prominence given to my picture and my party's guest list in the public prints than to the other bigger dances, but my father was put out because, by an inadvertence, the picture had gotten into the paper at all. Betsy expressed her own and my reactions to the whole affair when she said, At least nobody could say it wasn't a nice, healthy evening. What I felt myself to be during that winter was unequipped, unprepared, unaided, helpless, and suffering. What, I, what my contemporaries thought of me as was something known as a pill. The attendants in the dressing rooms of the hotels grew well acquainted with me through those hours when I cowered there, assuming chattiness, rather than let some wretched boy be stuck with me any longer. What, honey? Oh my goodness. After the first month of it, I stopped even bothering to invent excuses to the attendants about needing to mend my dress or my stocking. I simply fled to them. In February, just before the dances stopped for Lent, I fell in love. It began as if it were a mutual rescue of and by two kindred sufferers. I had retreated to the fireplace in the long room at the country club when the music stopped at the end of the intermittable circling in the arms of the son of one of my mother's friends whose stiff face softened when I said I had to speak to someone across the room. Oh, oh. 
There, leaning against the mantelpiece, stood a slight, wistful-looking young man with red hair. When he moved as I approached, I saw that he was lame. I had intended to stand there for only a moment to gauge my position, and decided whether to beat a, beat a retreat once again to the familiar upstairs dressing room or to join the hostess's group along the wall. But the strange young man put out his hand and touched my arm. I say, do you mind talking with me? He said in an English accent. I don't dance. Oh, I'm sorry. I just don't know if I can do an English accent. I don't. In like, oh God, oh God. That's tough, that's tough. I don't dance, you see, and I do feel most awfully sultry. He smiled, a shy, crooked smile. I'm making this boy sound like he's Oliver from Oliver Twist. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> oh my god. I hope he doesn't talk a lot. <laughs> I smiled too. I'm Lucy Elliot, I offered. What a nice name, he said. Lucy Lockett lost her pocket. My name's Guile Walls. Guile's Wall. We shook hands. He shift shifted his position with a clumsiness and went on. Music is what I'm made for. Oh, no, music is what I'm mad for. Music and ballet. What are you keen on? I think I like pictures the best, I said struggling to reveal the truth about myself. But I like music, too. We could have almost been mother and father all those years ago, exchanging enthusiasms. But before I even so much as left the country club that night, the situation I had got myself into was revealed to me. You were certainly hitting it off with Giles' wall, Betsy said to me as we put our evening wraps on. Betsy, Betsy still went to some of the debutantes' parties as an L-O-P-H, or left on Papa's hanser. She managed to screw a white bunny fur jacket out of the family this last Christmas, but my own wrap was the ultimate Bostonian degradation, the family Chinese robe worn over a sweater for warmth. Someone's really rifling around in the recycling outside. I don't know if you can hear that, but... I don't know. Goodness. He asked me to have tea with him at the Copley Friday, I said. I am sure my eyes shone. Inside me a river of stars seemed softly to be flowing. Good going, Betsy said. You'll end up with millions yet, old dear. What? I said, only slightly distracted from the com contemplation of the heaven which consists of the sim I'm sorry, I'm so distracted by this recycling. I don't know what they could be doing. <laughs> They're really, really doing it. They're doing it. It's going to be hilarious if you can't hear this, though, and I'm just... being freaked out myself. Anyway, okay, are you okay? 
I'm hearing the squeaking of doors and gates, which means that they're donezo. You know who he is, don't you? Betsy said. Giles Wall? Wall and Wall in New York? Bucky Sturges has the room next to him in Claverly, and he told me Giles went to school in England. And his mother ran away and married a duke, and his father is married to a ballet dancer, and they own about ten houses, just rolling. Giles isn't a bit popular at Harvard, though. He isn't even in a club, so he's just the thing for you, Betsy added with sisterly candor. <laughs> sisterly candor. That's what we're calling it. The stars in my river were all exploding. By the time I came down the stairs to the hall, where a milled crowd of stags and tails or black tie waited to say goodbye to someone or to take someone home, and saw Giles, his face greenish-white against his red hair, leaning against the further wall. I could feel the first stab of an agony which was to pierce my growing love like the golden arrow that pierces the red velvet harp. heart. Damn, girl, you got it bad for one meeting. There was never again to be for me the feeling of easy communication we had had when we leaned together against the fireplace, talking. Only my adoration continued to grow, and along with it, the conviction of my utter inadequacy. Giles used to come to see me, parking his lanka at the curb on Beacon Street and limping up the steps while I watched, hidden behind a glass curtain in the bow window, a heart thumping. I would go down to meet him in the reception room to the left of the front hall, and we would sit on the stiff sofa there while Giles talked about ballet and music. Betsy and her beau would more than likely have preempted the room, the living room, and I never liked to take Giles to the library because his mother was usually there. Giles talked about how fabulously beautiful his mother was and how his father had never cared for him and how his leg was broken playing at preparatory school in England and set improperly. How he had later hated Eaton, and how the symphony he was writing now, and about the symphony he was writing now. Uh, of course, he's writing a symphony. Giles. But nobody understands. <laughs> oh my god, I, I just won't do it. But nobody understands what I'm trying to do, he would insist. Nobody at all, actually. My heart bled. I want to understand, I cried. Do you? He would say, turning his bemused eyes on me. Sweet, sweet Lucy Lockett, I say, couldn't you get your family to let you come abroad this summer, perhaps? I'd adore to have you meet my mother. I'm sure she'd ask you. She's living in France, you know, with the beast Falchester she married. She's divine, my mother is. Very fair, with a face like an ill white lily. Quite, quite different from Mona. 
Mona, I had learned, was his father's present wife, his fourth. Mona's divine, too, of course, in quite another way from my mother. Dark, with a serene sort of brow a woman has if if she's to do her hair in smooth bands. Mona has the perfect ballet face, actually. I wonder how long my father will love her. I love to go abroad, I cried, when he seemed to wait for a reply to his suggestion. Maybe mother would let me. But, of course, mother wouldn't. I think not, she decided. This would not be a wise summer for Europe, Lucy. I admit my judgment was off about coming out for you, but this winter was to have provided your time for gaiety. It certainly provided nothing else. You must learn to seek a balance, dear. Radcliffe next year will give you the intellectual discipline you have lacked the past several months. I think of Europe, too, when you do go as a place of study. You will, of course, thrill to the masterpieces of art there as well, but the coming summer should be a time for vigorous exercise after your winter within doors. Besides, Giles' mother hasn't invited you. She would if only you'd say I could go. But I knew it was no use. Mother's logic and her sense of the fitness of things seemed irrefutable. She liked Giles. She thought of him as that poor, unloved, young thing who was moreover lame. But she was simply unconscious of those elements in his life that made me feel, underneath all of my longing and desire, a sort of terror lest mother might, after all, let me go to visit the Duchess of Falchester. I was too unequipped for it. Once again, but differently from in the dark days before the meeting with Giles beside the country club fireplace, I felt unprepared, unassisted, helpless, and suffering. I had been to good schools. I had learned that my mother had tried to teach me, but I did not know anything that I needed. I need seemed my needs seemed as infinite as the sea. We've we've got a cat on the bench doing some uh, some snooping around. Okay. (sighs) Okay. In late May, we moved as usual from Beacon Street down to our huge gray shingled house at Clam Harbor. Cold as a cave at this time of year. The change that had occurred in me was reflected by my realizing for the first time that my childhood's summer home was perfectly hideous. Our healthy summer routine began. A dip in the ocean before breakfast at 7, reading and letter writing till 10, swimming or tennis till luncheon, or sailing for the whole day, and for gaiety a frequent tea party in someone's garden to view how beautifully the cosmos and the sweet Williams and the candelas were coming along. My father, home from town by the time of the afternoon, would accompany us in boater hat with club ribbon and white flannel trousers. Sometimes there was a square dancing in the evenings, 
when we pranced back and forth until the house shook. Ugh, I've always wanted to go to the square dance. I'm not gonna lie. Tell me that doesn't sound fun. I mean... We had neighborhood traditions at Clam Harbor, which had come down from the last century, of playing a game of beanbags. Two sides were chosen, their members alternating with each other down two long rows. The beanbags were thrown crisscross by members of each team, and the team that got its 20 beanbags down to the end of the line and back to the start again won. Giles was in France with his mother and wrote me a few short letters. Sweet Lucy, how is America? We had dinner under the pergola last night, and I wished you could have one day seen the moon rise over the Rhone. My mother is suffering terribly, of course. Her suffering was nothing to do with my suffering, I felt. His wish nothing to my own wish, my need to be someone entirely different, somebody at home in the great world whom Giles could love, someone beautiful, sophisticated, and like an ill lily. I could visualize all too perfectly how I looked in my actual person, dressed in old cotton frocks we kept at Clam Harbor, wearing dirty sneakers, my hair unattractively blown about. I was without glamour and inescapably healthy because I had never learned how to go about being anything else. I was going to say something about And, uh, like, your hair being unattractively blown about. I feel like when you go to the beach, yes, your hair is in your face, and it feels unattractive. But honestly, to other people, it's I think it's cute. So, you gotta... Give, give yourself a break, Lucy. Come on. Into my need, like a sail on the horizon of a shipwreck, came Miss Bogdan. Somewhat breathless whispers of her fame had reached me earlier. Mr. Bogdan, a Boston widower, had met the former Miss Hurst in London the summer before. As he was starting on a little tour with his daughter, Carolina, who graduated from Windsor the year before I did. After sending Carolina home in September to continue her work at the School of the Museum of Fine Arts, he had remained in England to press his suit. <laughs> oh my god. In December, he married the American divorcee, and in spring, after a honeymoon in North Africa, brought her home to Boston. Later, when we had become fast friends, Miss Bogdan used to tell me about her flat on Half Moon Street, where she was living at the time of Mr. Bogdan's advent. Tiny, terribly amusing, really, and not at all expensive as such things go. Nikki Ertsoff had sublet it to her for 40 guineas only. How I could visualize that flat... My ravished imagination supplied color to the French furniture she described. The brocaded armchairs. I could see the delightful little suppers after the theater, before a small coal fire, and breath in the atmosphere, permeated deliciously by Ubon's... Ah, uh, some perfume's name. 
gyrofly? I'm not sure. My four years of French didn't do me well. The scent which I came to know so well, and which seemed the essence of my idol. Perfume was another of the elements in that unknown life to which I fearfully aspired. No one in the Elliot family had ever come any closer to perfume than 4711 Cologne. But for my birthday in May, Giles had presented me with a bottle of Le Bleu. I concealed it from my mother. That's a very sweet gift. Um, look at him. He knows. I concealed it from my mother, who I knew would not have let me accept it. All alone, in secret, I would take the big crystal bottle with its handsome stopper out from under a pile of sweaters in my bottom drawer and sniff the scent, which, more than words and images even, could suggest the atmosphere of another world. Sometimes I wept. This is a side note about smell, but um, it's... I feel like it's one of the senses that people forget about a lot and their specific sense that can bring you back to memories and it is so cool. I used to change my shampoo when I would go on trips so that I could like come back to it. Um and I do that I don't do that anymore because um I like my shampoo now, but it was it was so crazy to I would just be in the shower and then suddenly I'm in San Francisco or something anyway underrated scents I'd say sound and smell the two s's oh, I guess there's sight as well but the those other two s's count more the first time I met Miss Bogdan it was early in June, after a day out racing my lightning, with Carolina Bogdan crewing for me. A squall had overtaken us in the afternoon, and we had been successfully wet through and dried out again by the sun and the chill east wind that followed the rain. I guess my lightning is her sailboat, maybe? And that sounds lovely. Um, wow, I wish... I had a little sailboat here. By the time we walked up to Miss Bogdan's cabin, cottage, carrying the oars and the sail bag, we must have looked a sight. We went to the house, familiar to me from my childhood, and suddenly it was unfamiliar. A Russian icon was hanging on the matchboard wall at the foot of the stairs, a fur rug lay on the hall floor, and in the air was a curious dry fragrance. We walked into the living room, where a woman with beautifully arranged gray hair was crouching before the fire, holding the fire shovel out over the flames. Uh, Mom, Carolina said, this is Lucy Elliot. Without rising, Miss Bogdan turned toward us and smiled with dark red lips. How do you do? She said in the same sort of international British accent Giles had. Oh, fantastic. Another British accent. 
nice. Trying to take the awful damp out of the air, darlings, by burning it a bit of me perfume. An old London trick. Dare we try for some tea? Life is so difficult, she added, making a face in the direction of the kitchen door. This woman is fully Mary Poppins' accent at this point. Perhaps I would make her sound vapid. She was not. She was intuitive and had a gift for understanding, or if not understanding, for a kind of sympathy. Putting herself wholly in one's place and surrounding herself with an indignant loyalty that became for me like an oasis in the desert. After the first of the times I was invited up to Miss Bogdan's bedroom, I was never again to feel alone in my aspirations. She was invited to her bedroom? I mean, come on. It's only getting more suspicious. My longing and my pain. But of course, my darling, she had said earnestly, bending the gaze of her intelligent gray eyes upon me. Of course you must find a way to attract guiles. I know so exactly your feeling. It must all have been too frustrating. We must arrange something. We would often sit in that bedroom to which she had brought from the other world a touch of richness, a sense of luxury. The chairs we sat in were low, square, covered in pale satin, without arms. One sank into them. Wow, that sounds lovely. On one table stood Miss Bogdan's perfume bottles, square, round, tapering, or chunky. On the other were placed signed photographs of her friends abroad. Violet Rutland was, I learned, a signature of the Duchess. There were pictures of Carol and Madame Lupsko, of Leopold of Belgium, of Otto of Habsburg, and one signed Edward P. These two tables were to me like altars of the new god I worshipped. But of course you must visit his mother next summer. Miss Bogdan would agree. We must make you utterly enchanting for her. I used to know Mana slightly when she was wall. I know she'd adore you, with your pretty eyes and divine skin. We must arrange something that would make a little more, perhaps, of your looks. Her eyes would move, not in judgment, I felt, but in compassion over me, and then across the room that she had made so cozy to the window. They would rest briefly on the scene outside, the roofs of the Sturges' cottage next door, the bare rocks of Clam Point in the sunshine, and beyond, the cold blue sea. Her eyes would return to me. This fall, perhaps, we must run over to New York. Stay at the Angel Carlisle, don't you think? And have a bit of fun in the shops? Oh, yes, I, wrote, I would reply. Hope had been born against, again in my heart, and trust where there had been despair. It was Miss Bogdan who had saved me. I realize now, thirty years later, that with the egotism of youth, I never tried to turn the talk to any other subject but me.
Possibly I would not have thought myself worthy to bring up such a sacred topic as Miss Bogdan herself. Certainly in those days I believed her to be invulnerable, though I never thought consciously about it at all. Unconsciously, I must simply have assumed that anyone so wonderful as she must be happy. Her philosophy, as it reached me in its application to my problems, was one of happiness. But darling, I know so well, she often cried, life is so difficult, and all one wants is to have F-U-N, isn't it? It occurs to me now that she always put these beliefs of her of hers in the form of questions, as on the morning when we sat together on the dock in the dissolving mists, and to something I must have said about how unhappy I had been before I met Giles, and her, she said, the way to be happy is to be always in love, isn't it? I remember as well how she would get to her feet after one of our sessions and walk away from chair or weathered board step, singing, tall, exquisitely thin, dressed in a quite another sort of simplicity from our Boston simplicity, the simplicity of perfection. I think of her in that crimson tweed skirt and jersey with a string of chunky pearls clasped with a fake ruby, pearls in her ears, on her feet, shoes made for her at Hellstern's in Paris, and sheer lyle stockings for the country, with open-work clocks running up the ankles. Her gray hair made a delightful shape. Her large gray eyes were clear and lively. Her mouth was painted dark red. Love, love may come to anyone, she sang as she walked away. The best things in life are for free. <laughs> Needless to say, my infatuation did not pass without comment from my family. For example, at supper, out on the screen porch, one stormy evening when the candles flickered and guttered in their blue and white china candlesticks, Betsy said, How's your crush, Lucy? Taught you how to make your fingernails look like claws dipped in blood yet? I flushed. That's disgusting, I said. You always take the most ignorant, stupid Boston attitude to Miss Bogdan. She's just above your comprehension, that's all. You can have her, Betsy said. Joe Worthington says she was known all over Europe as an adventuress. It's a lie, I cried. I threw my napkin down on the table beside my plate. She's wonderful. She's beautiful and understanding and kind, which is more than, more than, but I could never express myself with the violence of the words that spoke in my head. Lucy, Betsy, mother was like a moderator, calling the meeting to order. Control yourselves. Betsy, even as a person, in our midst seems neither what we should call wise nor distinguished. That is no excuse for repeating defamatory tales. Both of you, be still. We sat after our family custom of calling for a silence to put an end to discord. While the salt air of evening slapped the backs of our necks and our bare arms, we saw the light on Badger's Island flash. 
at regular intervals through the dusk. Mother, at the head of the table, sat erect as ever. Father sat at the other end, his long back hunched over, crumbling a roll between his fingers. Betsy had turned her gaze away from me onto her plate. Suddenly she cried, Mother, how can you be so unfair? Miss Bogdan is just the sort of person you disapprove of most, and yet you won't let me say anything against her? You may express your disapproval if you like, Mother said. Only you do not condone, condemn anyone or spread scandal. And if you should ever find me taking an uncharitable attitude toward anyone, I hope very much that you will call it to my attention. I don't think Miss Bogdan is worthy of charity, Betsy said. She's a hard-boiled lady. Oh, she's a hard-boiled baby, if you ask me. You don't imagine she gives you all this famous understanding for your own sweet sake, do you, Lucy? She's simply trying to get to know us. Oh, heavens, someone trying to get to know you. Oh, my God. Mother, do I have to listen? Betsy, you're displaying an unwarranted vanity, it seems to me. The person in question is ordinary, but she may have sincere affection for Lucy. My hope is that Lucy is not so in need of affection that she will settle for that brand of it for very long. But you are not maligned to the person. Mother, Betsy said, disgusted. Why must you always be so godlike? Mother smiled and shook her sandy head. Then I remember she expressed one of her most characteristic ideas. The sort of idea, I suspect, upon what she meditated at the summits of those mountains she was always ascending. None of us need to worry about being too much like God, she said. But if you're talking about charity, it has always seemed to me that God is charitable, not because people are in any way worthy of it, but because if he wasn't, he wouldn't be God. It was in August... An unusually hot day, when the letter from Giles came, in the morning mail. I read it and then hurried over to Miss Bogdan's house. She was sitting in the grass of the front lawn. None of our 19th century cottages had modern terraces. On a big plaid steamer rug, doing her toenails in the sunshine. Cute. What a day. I knelt down on the rug beside her sank back on my heels and held my tongue while she finished the infinitely careful application of deep crimson, crimson varnish. Against the black knitted mallet she, wear, she wore, Miss Bogdan's arms and legs were beautifully brown and smooth. At length, she put the brush back into her bottle of polish, twisted its cork tight, and smiled at me. "'What troubles you, my sweet?' she said." I thrust the letter at her, and at the same moment divulged its contents in a burst. It's Giles! He wants to come here! He had some terrible row with his mother's husband. I think the Duke knocked him down. And he left, and he wrote from him, from this from London. 
he wants to come and stay with us before college opens, and what shall I do? Miss Bogdan gazed at me earnestly, took the letter from my hand and read it. She ran the ball of her thumb absentmindedly over the address at the top of the first page and put the letter slowly back into its envelope. What a beast Falchester is, she remarked. The boy really is in a jam. Poor child. Life is so difficult, isn't it? I think it'd be good for him to come here. There are times when one does need utter, utter rest. But he can't stay at our house, I cried, freezing to death at the meals out on that horrible porch playing beanbags with Betsy always snooping around and Mother preaching at us all the time. I swallowed hard. It was the first time I had ever criticized Mother outside the family, and my words sounded profane to me. I hurried past them. Giles has never seen anything so absolutely awful in the way we live. He won't know what to make of it. He'll never want to see me again. My idol smiled. I'll put him up, she said, and she spoke it as if honey and bliss were dropping from her lips. I'd love to have the poor child. I'll give him a little party for one of the nights he's here. Something a little amusing, perhaps. And plan an evening to the Magnolia Casino. Take lunch to Queen's Island and a bit of champagne. And when there's nothing more diverting, dine down at the Fisherman's Dive in Clam Depot. Just for fun, don't you think? Oh, yes, I breathed, once more resurrected. That would be wonderful. We come now, in this string of old memories, to a scene which my mind always tends to avoid, but which I force myself to face. We are all on the beach at Clam Harbor. I am sitting on a huge emerald green Turkish towel beside Miss Bogdan, who has one of her French mouths, pale blue this time, against her radiant tan. I suppose I myself must have been wearing some dreadful Annette Kellerman. We were both looking up at my mother, who stands on the sand at the rim of an emerald towel. She is speaking about our plans for Giles' visit. She wears the baggy old grey bathing, bathing dress with its rows of rust-stained white braid. Her hair is inadequately tucked under a grey rubber cap. She must have paused to speak to us on her way down to the water's edge. Perhaps I even called to her. Plain, austere, unmodified in any way by fashion. Her appearance is simply overpowering. I don't feel that it is suitable, she is saying. Since you say Miss Bogdan has never seen Giles, it is not as if he were already her friend. He is a friend of ours. We have Lucy guest rooms and to spare. If he is asked to stay with us here before college opens, do by all means tell him to come. But he must stay at our house and fall in with our normal occupations and amusements as any visitor might. I realized that there was nothing more to be said, but Miss Bogdan didn't. She said, simply, Miss, dear Miss Elliot, I've so much time on my hands as 
I'm sure you've not. It would give me enormous pleasure to arrange little amusements for the child. Quelque uh, petit diversement. Something to accustom them to gaiety. Lucy, mother said, is accustomed to simplicity. But don't you feel, Miss Bonton insisted, that when one is young and, so to speak, on the verge of the great world, one needs a little helping nudge, the outstretched hand, in sort something a little different from this rather simple life. Life is so difficult, actually. But Miss Bogdan had made a fatal error. Very, my mother said. And so there can be no question of having someone who is coming to pay us a visit stay with neighbors, however kind their intentions, she added politely. After the burning yellow beach that ran for miles around the curve of Clam Harbor into Granite Port, and so out again to Badger's Point, the sun seemed suddenly put out. Within a private night I got to my feet, shaking all over. Then tell him not to come, I cried, stone blind to the people still out in the sunshine. I don't want him here. I won't have him come that way. There is no record in my memory of any answer to my words. That is the scene's end, but I remember well what came of it. I wrote to Giles that we were going to be driving around in the White Mountains after the middle of August, so we could not have him to stay beside the sea, but that I looked forward to seeing him at Beacon Street after college began. Nobody told me or forbade me to do this, or advised me how to go about doing it, it was my particular solution to my own problem, like a lid shutting on a particular time in my life. I never saw Giles again. He returned to Harvard, but stayed in England. A year or two later, after I had moved, after I had already moved to Arizona, I read in the Los Angeles paper that he had been married to a lady, Honor Wilkes, a cousin of his. The paper said, Oof. in the news photo, she had one of those sharply chiseled British faces with short hair parted on one side. I have no idea whether they are still married. Today I know nothing of the world in which people like that live. Nothing. I left even the world of Boston when I came out here. I have only been back for father's funeral. Every winter, of course, mother pays me a visit on her way to stay with Betsy and the grandchildren in Seattle. It is odd how both Betsy and I have moved to the corners of the country, farthest away from Boston. But distances don't faze Mother. She travels by jet and arrives serene with a copy of the Upandishes in her hand. She is amazing. She it was, for example, who after that year of my hopeless struggling to keep going, ending with my flunk with my flunking my freshman exams at Radcliffe, found me this job of mine to which, although I don't mean to sound boastful, everyone agrees I am so exactly suited. I have moved up over the years, and in spite of not possessing a degree, to being assistant director for the School for Delicate Children, 
children who are sent to us from all over the world, from Japan and Antipes and London and New York and Middleburg. They are places often that are healthy enough in themselves. There has only been one lack in these children's fortunate lives to have made their eyes hollow and their coughs hacking. The school is lodged in what was once a hospital in the desert outside of Tucson, a series of adobe blocks constructed around small patios, each with a fountain in the middle. I live in the one named Cigarro, with seven of the children and two of the younger teachers. In the daytime, the sun is blazing and the children take carefully supervised sun baths spaced into their schedules so that they will get them before 11, even when the sun becomes dangerous. In the evening, the sun sets behind Tucson and Tea Mountain. Night in the Arizona, in Arizona, has in the Arizona, has a large and sterile quality, clear black air and stars like arc lights. It is then, after I've gone to sleep, that I sometimes waken, that I am sometimes wakened by coyotes out in the desert, like a band of m mad nightmare fan phantasms howling and laughing and cannot go back to sleep, but lie here and remember the years of my own youth, which was such a sheltered one and passed along people who loved me. My wholesome background had, of course, everything to do with my being allowed to try out at this job, untrained for it as I was. It is an axiom of the work that if you have never known emotional security in your childhood, you cannot possibly impart it to others. Oof. I guess therapy didn't exist yet. I am one of those lucky ones who are able to say, my mother loved me, always, always. Mother produced the opportunity, in fact, that time when I was at my lowest ebb, just the way she always did produce whatever was needful, as though out of the air. She arranged for my interview with the then director, Miss Alden, who was in the East though one of her myriad associations with worthwhile people in philanthropy, social betterment, and child welfare. She saved me at a time when Giles had disappeared forever from my life, and when I was ashamed to see Miss Bogdan anymore, embarrassed too, as if by bungling the Giles business, I had let her down too badly. I was turned back on, reduced to my own dreary, unappealing, unrewarding, lone self. Even then I realized I was being saved from something, and that it was Mother who was saving me, after all, not Miss Bogdan. Sometimes in the early days I used to feel that, by working at this job, I was helping the little boy whom Giles once was, the unloved, the forgotten, the suffering child of this century. It hadn't taken me long to realize, once it was too late, that Giles would have loved the life in our clam harbor house. It would have been the very life he had always been starved for, 
Any rebellion I'd ever felt toward it seemed to expire as though with a little sigh of relief as soon as I was settled in Arizona. It had been Miss Bogdan, it would appear, not me, who was building up a head of steam against Boston in the course of those long stays of ours. She never breathed a word to me about what must have been her rising fury, but less than three years after the summer of which I had have been writing, she kicked over the traces, and as people put it in the letters I got from Boston, flew the coop, bolted. She divorced Carolina's father and married and married a Honolulu Hutchinson, immensely rich, as indeed Mr. Bogdan had been. But I realize now, Miss Bogdan could not possibly have understood, when she married Mr. Bogdan in London, about Bostonians and their attitudes to money. For them, it is not something too lavish or even to spend. It is something to nurture, like a plant. It is a sacred trust. In any case, it is nothing with which to have, as Miss Bogdan would have said, F-U-N. I used to have a vision of how she must have looked as she boarded the Boston section of the 20th century, Reno-bound. I saw her close the door of her compartment behind her, pull the little hat off her gray hair, take a handful of bills from her Hermes purse and throw them up into the air, stretch her arms out, throw back her lovely head, so like the powdered head of an 18th century king's mistress, and exclaim, God! But I had never actually seen Miss Bogdan since I left Boston, until I went to San Francisco last week to meet the boat of Owlsworth child was sent to us by from Hawaii. The Owlsworth child is typical of our pupils, stiff with tension from the violent emotions rich parents seem to spill around them. Desire and hate and jealousy and malice and anger and more desire. If they could only see, if they could just grasp that their conflicts are all their children have, have to use as nourishment. What can a child know of feeling but what it feels? The Osworth child was sent to us alone, which, again, is typical. The reasoning would be nothing could possibly happen to her on that nice, sh safe ship. If she's sick, the stewardess can look after her, can't she? And besides, the child's not a baby. She's eight. Not a baby, just a child, who has begun obscurely to realize that it is facing life. Life! which absolutely nothing to face it with. We here have come to feel that unloved children are often living out their parents' conflicts in a sort of pathetic attempt to offer some little solution. Ugh, do I need to read that sentence again? <laughs> we here have come to feel that unloved children are often living out their parents' conflicts in a sort of pathetic attempt to offer some little solution. At school, we rage against some parents. I had gone on board to fetch her and was walking up the promenade deck towards her stateroom. 
The Owlsworths would never spare expense, of course, when suddenly I saw Miss Bogdan. She was coming along the deck very slowly, on the arm of, I suppose, her husband. I've said already that I know nothing of the world in which rich people navigate nowadays. I know no world except the world of sick children, so it's possible that many rich people look the way this couple did, and that if I were more used to them, I wouldn't have felt so shocked. But the aging couple were as frightening to me as figures out of the Hernimius Bosch. They came towards me, not seeing me. I'm not a person anyone notices. He in white trousers with a pencil stripe and a navy blue blazer. She in a cream-white knitted costume and a white broad-brimmed straw hat. Rich, they looked. Rich. Irritated, fussy, with eyes as bright as jewels, cynical, bored, unhappy. But it wasn't any of all of that which shocked me. Oh, goodness. Sorry. Um, what... For I have often enough read such description of, descriptions of worldly people in the pages of novels. What I never read about in any book, what gives me the knot in the pit of my stomach was the look in Miss Bogdan's face, the look for, far behind it. I'd thought for a moment of going up to her, holding out my hand and saying, Miss Bogdan, it's Lucy Elliot. But the look in the still beautiful, pleasure-loving, powdered old face stopped me while I peered, hesitating. The look I am talking about was a double look, really. It was two things at once. Part of it was fear under the cream foundation. Fear like a smart whip to brighten up the tired eyes. And part of it was the even deeper hidden thing the fear was of. Death, holding the whip and looking at me, right there out of her face. I don't know what manner of death, just death. I was too shaken to do anything but hurry on along the deck. But last night, back in Arizona again, I woke in the middle of the night and heard the coyotes howling and laughing crazily out in the sterile desert. And once more, as so many, many times before, my mind went back to Clam Harbor and the days when I was young. Once more, I seemed to be sitting on the silvery splintered boards of the old dock in the morning cool, talking to Miss Bogdan, who was dressed in her favorite dark red. Her face is turned away towards the sea, but lying in the western darkness, I could hear her voice asking me, as I have so often heard her ask. The way to be happy is always to be in love, isn't it? Isn't it? She turns her lovely face towards me, and this time her face is full of death. Suddenly, for the first time, I realize what it was I should have answered her. Within my narrow schoolmistress's bed, I felt my whole body strain, as I imagined crying out, No! No, it isn't! Feel what you ought to feel! Practice unity with all creation! Give yourself to the ocean! Because Mother was right, of course, about Miss Bogdan, as about everything else. Today, at the age of 83, my mother's face has no death in it. 
Her face is filled with that life she has believed in all along, which always has existed and ever shall exist. For while I lay there, awake in Arizona, thinking with pride and absolute acceptance of my wonderful mother, but then, such as the unregenerated human ego, I had to turn my face to the pillow and begin to cry. What happened? What about me? I kept blubbering as I squeezed the pillow around my head so that the children should not hear me and smelled the curious scent that tears always have. What about all those years? Where is my life? And that's the end of Rich People by Nancy Hale. That was um, not quite what I expected, um, but really stunning, a very slow, um, just lovely description of this past story life of this woman. There's 1960 at the end of the story, so I assume that that's when it was published. Um, I couldn't be too sure, but yeah, that was lovely. I, um, <laughs> you know, there's something comical about rich people writing about, like, egregiously rich people and how egregious their richness is, um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, we have degrees, and I don't think that if Lucy had lived um, where I grew up, that she would be thinking quite the things that she thinks about her life as a young child. But that's um, such a sweet story of, like... Of like kind of a cliche I guess of realizing that your mother is like you know you want to be so against your mom when you're a teenager and then realizing when you're older that she's like this incredible woman and how lovely how lovely I guess we should all go call our moms now um Though, I will not be talking for a while because that was so long and my throat, wow, that was, that's definitely got to be the longest one yet. Um, but yeah, if you have any thoughts on this, feel free to message me. Um, I, I forgot about the reminders. Um, and we certainly do need them since it's been two weeks, but um, if you have any stories that you want to share, there's an email link at the bottom of the website, um, so feel free to send, it, whether they be um, stories that have been written by other people or by you, perhaps. I would love to read. Um, and this broadcast will be available until the next one airs, 
a week from today. And, um, yeah. Thank you for listening to How Did It Get So Late. I hope you have a lovely rest of your night and week and sweet dreams until next time.